0: All right. So 2016, some people are very excited about all this happened this year. Other people aren't, but regardless of what you think about what has happened, the unavoidable fact of this year is that there are a lot of people in the US and the UK who are afraid right now, and they're tightening their budgets in response. And I totally get that reaction, but one thing you might not have considered is that the arts and independent creations like the British History Podcast are often the first things to be cut when budgets are tightened. Being that we have a very small community and run on an incredibly tight budget, things like this can have a huge impact on whether or not we can keep the lights on. So if you're able to, consider supporting your two favorite podcasts. And I mean that regardless of whether or not it includes the BHP. Because at times like these, shows like this can disappear altogether. Your support goes a long way in filling the gaps left by people who are canceling right now. And every bit matters. Every membership matters. Thanks. Welcome to the British History Podcast, My name is Jamie, and this is episode 222: Viking Kings and the Black Pool. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. In this week's episode, we're talking about carbon dating, using strontium to figure out where people grew up, why male elephant seals are so friggin' big, the alloy, and more. It's a crazy episode. And you can get instant access to that and all the other members' episodes by signing up for membership at the thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a pint per month. And thank you very much to Eric, Chelsea, and John for signing up already. At some point early in the Viking Age, a group of Northmen came across a natural harbor on the western side of the Irish Sea being that they were a seafaring people having places in foreign lands where they could safely make port was a significant advantage orkney was already showing its usefulness and now they needed another waypoint farther to the south the life of a northman even the life of a vikinger involved a lot more traveling and trading than it did actual raiding so having friendly trading spots along their route wasn't just convenient it would have been good business and by the early 840s, these enterprising captains had begun establishing a long port, which was the Irish word for a Viking fortified encampment. It's thought that the term essentially was a description for a port for long ships. So long port, pretty self-explanatory. Establishing these long ports was vital for Scandinavian success in the region We've seen Northmen build temporary encampments in Britain, at places like Repton, but these Irish longports were a little bit different, because in addition to being a home base for raiders, they also filled a key function in Scandinavian operations in the West. They were trading centers. And so, at this Irish natural harbor, a longport was established, and trade followed soon thereafter. Some scholars argue that there is a pre-existing settlement of natives in that same area, and that very well may have been the case. But for the Northmen, the main point of interest was the Scandinavian settlement that was developing. It was ideally located for commerce, especially the sort of commerce that the Northmen in that region tended to deal in. It was named after the Irish description of the nearby waters, which they called Blackpool. Though in Old Irish, it was pronounced Dublin. And thus, one of the most famous Viking slave trading settlements was established. Dublin continued to grow in power, and I'm sure that anyone paying attention could see that there was a great deal of money to be made there. And within a decade, business was booming. And by 853, a man with about the most old Irish name I've ever seen, and I won't even try and pronounce it, seized power and reigned over the region as a king. Luckily for me, his name appears to have been an old Irish attempt at understanding Scandinavian names. And so these days, this figure is generally believed to be Olaf the White. Which is a lot easier to say than... Amlai Cunning? I think it's Amle Cunning. But do you see what I mean? I can pretty much guarantee I'm getting that wrong. Anyway, with this single event, it had become clear that what was once just a trading settlement would now be the kingdom of Dublin. However, King Olaf wouldn't rule alone for very long. A few years later, we read of another king who co-ruled this new kingdom alongside Olaf. The Irish sources tell us that this co-regent was Olaf's brother, and his name was Imar. Most scholars believe that this was Ivor the Boneless, king of Dublin. And right now, you're probably asking... Did Ragnar Lothbrok have another son? Was there an Olaf in addition to Halfdan, Bjorn Ironside, Sigurd Snake in the Eye, Ubba, and Ivor the Boneless? And I don't know. I don't even know how real Ragnar was. I don't know if all the purported sons of Ragnar were actually his sons, even if he did exist. So was the use of the word brother actually an indication of real family? Or was it more like being a brother in arms? and it was indicating that they were just really close. Or was it Irish scribes thinking that all Scandinavians were related? Don't know. But whatever the case, Dublin was in operation, and it was under the command of Kings Ivor and Olaf. And wars raged. Much like with our story, the story of Dublin is full of twists, turns, betrayals, a bunch of hurt feelings, and, you know, death. But throughout all of it, the economic power of Dublin continued to grow, thanks in no small part to the wars that Ivor and Olaf waged, and the Anglo-Saxon, Pictish, and British slaves that they would bring back to port to sell after those wars. Business was good. And these were ambitious kings. They were active all throughout the Isles the strathclyde britons the irish the east anglians the northumbrians they have brought the sword to a shocking number of people in a very short period of time and while the sources are fragmentary at best it appears that after a little bit olaf left the kingdom of dublin in order to press some claims back in scandinavia and that left ivor in charge the annals tells us that he was king not just of Dublin, but over all the Norse in Ireland and Britain. Now, how true that was, and whether the Irish scribes were drawing distinctions between the Norse and the Danes, and also whether or not they really understood the political reality of the Scandinavians and the British Isles, are questions for a different time. What's important for us right here is that it appears that, with Olaf leaving, Ivor was fully in charge of the kingdoms that he conquered. And that's great news for Ivor. Though, no matter how much territory he held, he couldn't escape the reality that being a Viking king was dangerous business. It involved a lot of travel, probably a lot of dodgy local cuisine, questionable water sources, and, of course, plenty of battles and long sieges. It was tough on a body, It had to take a toll. And it did. In about 873, King Ivor the Boneless died. And then the record gets even more soupy. It looks like Oysten, who was Olaf's son, might have seized the throne. However, they don't specifically say the word king in relationship to him. So we can't say for sure whether or not he was really the king, but he looks like he was sort of in power. It's also possible that Barad, who, according to the annals, was Ivor's son, might also have seized the throne. And some scholars suspect that the two men, Oyston and Barad, co-ruled following Ivor's death. As usual, though, it isn't entirely clear. But one thing does appear to be certain. It looks like Ivor's brother, Halfdan, felt that the throne should have gone to him. And since Ivor's death, Hafdan Ragnarsson had made quite a name for himself. He came a long way in the four years that followed. And now he was the master of Jorvik. And he had the submission of East Anglia, Mercia, Strathclyde, and Pictland. The speed at which he consolidated power in Britain was stunning. But his work wasn't finished. There was still one piece left. So Hafdan gathered his forces and crossed the irish sea he was going to retake his brother's crown by force if necessary at least that's how it seems to be honest though the record of this period is enigmatic and confusing even by our standards the dates don't perfectly line up and names are best guesses but amidst all of this we do get a fascinating entry we're told that on the same year that Halfdan led his forces into Ireland. Oyston, son of Olaf, was deceitfully killed by Halfdan. Which... Well, hold on. Did Halfdan murder his own nephew? Was this an attempted coup? Well, I don't know. But right on the heels of that event, we hear the Battle of Strangford Loch. Though, even that battle is a bit strange, because if you're up on your Irish geography you'll know that's pretty far from Dublin. I honestly don't know why the forces met at that particular location, but the Irish sources tell us that Halfdan led an army of dark heathens against Barad and his army of fair heathens. Honestly, this dark and fair comparison reminds me a bit of Cahullin. And consequently, much like with the timing and location of this battle, I really wish we had more detail because this seems to imply that the Irish recognized that there were differences between the Scandinavians and they might have been drawing distinctions based upon appearance. It certainly is interesting to hear about different types of Scandinavians in the record, since our Anglo-Saxon records just lumped them all together and used the various terms interchangeably. But, whatever the scribes meant with all this fair, dark stuff, Halfdan was bringing war upon Ireland. And he appears to have already killed one nephew, and was now working on getting a matched set. The battle raged, and at some point in the fighting, King Barad was wounded. King Halfdan might have felt like he was right on the cusp of victory. However, his luck had finally run out. We don't know how it happened, or who landed the blow. But in the chaos of that battle, King Halfdan of Jorvik, overking of East Anglia, Mercia, Strathclyde, and Pictland, met his end. His dream of retaking the lands of Ivor and adding them to his own ended there on the battlefield. And in Ireland, this battle probably only really mattered to them in that it meant that Barad had one less rival to deal with. But the story across the Irish Sea, back in Britain, was very different. This battle was consequential. Because when 877 began, much of Britain was united under a single overlord. But now, as 877 was drawing to an end, all of that was thrown into uncertainty. Halfdan's failed war had resulted in nothing more than an enormous power vacuum in Britain. And news of it probably traveled quickly. Which brings us back across the Irish Sea and to our old friend, Guthrum, who really wasn't having that good of a year. I mean, sure, it was better than Halfdan's, but that's a pretty low bar. 877 was for the Danes what 2016 has been for us. And Guthrum had gotten quite a dose of it. His gambit had failed and he was unable to hold on to either Wareham or Exeter. Furthermore, his reinforcements now littered the ocean floor just off the West Saxon coast. And he was forced to provide numerous hostages just to be able to get out of the kingdom. And that left him bruised and battered, and crossing into Mercia with what remained of his army. 877 had not been a good year for Guthrum. But at least they were no longer in Wessex. Though Guthrum knew that he needed to ensure the loyalty of his army, and that meant that he had to provide them with either treasure or land. They'd gone into Wessex with the promise of at least one of those, and probably both. And it was his duty to provide what was owed looking around the farms and fields of southern mercia and watching the peasants harvest their crops because it was now harvest season gave guthrum an idea while wessex had proved to be just as intractable for his army as it had been for halfdan's great army perhaps mercia would be just as compliant maybe just as halfdan had done He would be able to use the kingdom as his own personal ATM. And while Mercia was subject to Halfdan, and thereby likely under his protection, well, Halfdan had just died. Mercia was on its own. So Guthrum gave the order. The army would swing left. They were headed for a major city on the Severn. One that had easy access to the sea was a natural trading post, and critically, as it was an ancient Roman colony for retired legionaries, it could be quickly fortified if needed. They were headed for Gloucester. It was a short march, and it appears that the experienced Vikinger force took the city without much fanfare or effort, and it immediately set about turning it into their base. Far away, in Winchester, I wonder if Alfred was quietly chuckling to himself. In one move he'd gotten Guthrum out of his kingdom, and he'd managed to get a little strike back against the Mercian puppet king that ousted Alfred's sister and his brother-in-law, Burgred. So now it was that turncoat King Cholwulf II of Mercia who had a foreign army in possession of one of his cities. And that just had to have felt good. And actually, this was just the tip of the iceberg for Cholwulf. For the puppet king of Mercia, The hits of 877 were coming fast and furious it probably all began for him with the death of halfdan because halfdan wasn't just his overlord he was the man who put him on the throne and was probably also a major reason why he was still on the throne mercy and politics were full contact and there were plenty of rival factions and he was a known puppet king of the danes that doesn't exactly make you popular So his enemies were legion. And the only thing that was probably keeping him safe was the threat of retribution from Halfdan and his great army. But now, those days were gone. But before he could even catch his breath, suddenly there was an army of Danes in his kingdom. And now they were digging themselves into his western border city, which meant, in practical terms, that Mercia had suddenly become largely landlocked. What was he going to do? Well, I doubt he had very long to ponder his options before messengers from Guthrum arrived at his court and made the situation plainly obvious to the Mercian king. Guthrum was the new power in Britain, and he expected that Cholwulf would do his duty and submit. It was a reasonable expectation of Guthrum's, because what choice did Cholwulf really have? Even if he wanted to fight back against the Danes, could he really pull that off? With as many rivals as he had in his own kingdom, how many people would actually show up to fight Guthrum? The only sane choice here was to play nice with this new Danish king. And that's what Cholwulf did. But it didn't come without a cost. Guthrum had gone into Wessex to take land. His men expected victory and lands of their own. And they got neither. The West Saxon campaign had been a failure but that didn't mean that Guthrum couldn't pay his bills. So, Guthrum would give them lands, Mercian lands. But here's where it gets really interesting. The Chronicle says that Guthrum seized Mercian land and shared it out to his army. But it also says that he shared those lands to Cholwulf as well. The fact that Guthrum seized lands in Cholwulf's kingdom and then gave some of them back to Cholwulf might seem a little strange to you. But if you look between the lines and you take a good hard look at the way Mercia was set up and the way that noble families operated, it might start to make a little more sense. Do you remember when we talked about bookland way back? That was the Anglo-Saxon term for handing over lands permanently. The church was super into it, but once the church started getting permanent land grants, the nobles started asking for the same deal. It made sense that everyone would want it, because it meant that you wouldn't have to worry about your heirs becoming homeless when you died, and you didn't have to worry about you going homeless because the king got a buck up his ass, or when the old king died, the new king didn't like your face, and so he took your lands away. With book land, those lands were now yours. It provided stability for the landowning class, but it also weakened the power of the monarch, and it made rival factions all the more difficult to deal with. No longer were the eldermen just the king's favorites selected from prominent families. Instead, they now held those titles across generations. They were wealthy landowners with large numbers of peasants who had served their specific family for generations. And many of them were rival factions. And because of the way the economy worked, their power came from their lands. And it looks like Mercia in particular had an interesting relationship with these dynasties. Because Mercia was a coalition of multiple smaller kingdoms that slowly formed into the Mercia we now know. And we see indications that certain Mercian dynasties go back to those smaller older kingdoms. For example, we talked in the past about certain Mercian nobles who are thought to have been from the old royal dynasty of the Huissa. Those dynasties appear to have held lands in broad regions, and most other dynasties probably operated in the same way, just based upon the way land grants and land divisions seems to have worked. And into this situation enters Guthrum. Guthrum wanted lands to be able to give to his followers, and he probably wanted good lands, but ultimately... He just wanted land. And Cholwulf knew that there were some nobles who were less politically aligned with him than others. And the power of those nobles came from their lands. And while they probably didn't have the political or military strength to be able to seize those lands directly, it's doubtful that a few eldermen could withstand Guthrum and his army on their own. So it's possible that with these land seizures and the fact that Guthrum was giving some of those lands to Cholwulf, what was happening here was Guthrum was solidifying his hold on Mercia, and Cholwulf was allowing it because it was also securing his political flank, at least in the short term. And it was doing this by stripping some of his rivals of their source of power, while also adding to his own coffers. Not bad for a, quote, foolish king's thane, end quote. And in Winchester, you can imagine Alfred probably felt pretty good. Halfdan was dead. Cholwulf got his comeuppance. Guthrum appears to have been cowed and was transforming from a raider into a colonist. And as a bonus, he was settling in Mercia rather than Wessex. Everything was coming up Alfred. Or so he thought. Guthrum still had a few tricks up his sleeve. And while Ivor and Halfdan were dead, there was still a son of Ragnar who was active in the British Isles. Ubba was still out there. In fact, he was currently in the Welsh kingdom of Devid, and Asser tells us that he was embroiled in a brutal conflict and committing massacres against the local population. But soon, Ubba's war against southwestern Wales would end. Soon, he'll be looking to broaden his horizons and seek riches elsewhere. Wessex was not out of the woods yet. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. Just find us at British Podcast, and you can find all our other communities at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.